serious well i start them i like to start them out by saying your name my name just in an intro without having to like do an actual big intro great so we've now established who we are who we are get ready for it i'm still me you're still you you finally did it I finally you got did it. <laughs> elena smith to the festival i did Yay! it's been like a three four year saga but we did it and she was amazing everything we wanted her to be in more. Sometimes you do want to meet your heroes, kids. Yes. Yes. They're very cool. Oh, she was so fantastic. And you know the best part? Hmm. She also fell in love with us. I know. It definitely made my heart grow a little bit. Hearing right. her talk about how, uh, how much fun she had, which is always, I mean, always nice to hear. She just jumped right in. She was immediately part of the family. And... You and I both have a deep, deep love for Dickinson, mm-hmm. which I appreciate on this co- in this conversation. We get to go on a little bit of a Dickinson journey with her, which we'll let her say and not get into. But having not been able to do anything with Dickinson specifically yet, this was the best first step. Yeah, I'm hoping this really, I think it's really going to make people want to go watch Dickinson, which is great. Um, because, yeah, I think, I mean, there's definitely... Um, a lot to be said on this topic and I think a lot of people who you know would would have a lot to say about it um but I kind of like that this ended up being like a one-on-one with her and um Dan about really like the full journey of Dickinson and all the different parts of sort of launching a series uh on a new platform in a very tumultuous time in the industry um and what that journey was like creatively, spiritually, logistically. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it gives a lot of cool insight into it's a bit of a case study. Yeah, I totally agree. Physical media is something that's very important to you. It should be mm-hmm. important to all of us. But I know this has been one of your passion points for a bit. Can you say why? Well, back in the day, um, <laughs> <laughs> pre I was like what day are we talking about streaming services um before everything was just available on well, not everything but most things um I mean this was how I fell in love with TV like I um really started kind of obsessing over shows like probably around freshman year of high school um do you know what the first show you obsessed over was mm-hmm. CSI Vegas <laughs> would not have picked that you could have lined up a hundred shows and would not have picked that to be the one for you but great mm-hmm. love it great mm-hmm. um which is funny because that's also the first i mean by then like csi had been on at least four or five years which meant that i was watching like the marathons on like <laughs> spike tv <laughs> do you remember that oh yeah um so I would like watch these marathons, but obviously there are commercials and you see a lot of the same ones over and over. And there was stuff I needed to know that I wasn't getting on Spike TV. Um, and so I started to hunt down the box sets and I have a very vivid memory of not being able to get the first two seasons for some reason um, in the U.S. And so I had to order bootleg copies from China. <laughs> And then the rest of them I have I have US sets. But for some reason, one and two were not available and I was very set on getting them. And I paid way too much money to have them come over on a ship from China. So that's kind of how my obsession with box sets started. And, you know, I'd fall in love with a show and then I'd wanna catch up and and box sets were the way to do it. Like you had you had to find it on DVD somewhere or you were just like you only had half the show, you know. As you're telling this story, a memory popped up for when I was in college, maybe right out of college, doesn't matter, early 20s, my family went on a cruise to Hawaii, and I took with me a box set of, I don't think it was season one, it may have been season two of 24, mm-hmm. and so I had my computer with my disc player, Which whatever. Which they don't even come with anymore. Nope, not at all, and had taken this box set of 24 and was watching it, and my sister and I were sharing a room, and so she started watching 
episodes with me. And so we on this cruise would rush back to the room at night to watch episodes because mm-hmm. once we got done, I mean, she was coming back to Texas. I was living in California. And so we had to finish the season yeah. before we split ways. And so literally... Like Jack, you're on a time limit. Oh my gosh, total time limit. And so we would, <laughs> in the middle of, we'd go on an excursion and be like, okay, let's go. Everyone's going to take a nap. <laughs> we're like, let's go watch some episodes of 24. And we yeah. were literally shoving as much into that week as we could of watching 24 in order to try and finish it. And I, I'm going to ask her if we did. I can't remember if we finished or not, mm-hmm. or if I had to then me finish watching it and then mail it to her. Yeah. I can't remember, but it was this like, this was the only way to watch. It's not like when you go on a trip now and you're streaming something, then you can, everyone can go to their own homes and finish it. Yeah. That was the only way to watch it. Yeah. I mean, I had a friend like loan me season one of the OC for some reason. I don't even know how I ended up with it, but she loaned it to me and then I started watching it and then my dad came into the room and then he got interested and then (laughs) suddenly we had binged 16 hours of the OC. Like, and you just... But that was, you know, and like, I remember like ordering discs, you know, of Gilmore Girls on Netflix and like waiting for them to come in so I could like watch more with my mom. And like, there are just, there is just something about the experience of having this physical thing and then like being able to like loan it out or mm-hmm. or share it with somebody or um, it's just a different like point of access that I think really makes you invest a little bit more Um and also, like, it's become very obvious that these things may not be around digitally forever. And yeah. so what happens to your favorite shows if they don't live on, you know, a streaming, pla- ex- you know, streaming platform anymore? Um, and I'm not I'm not interested in losing my favorite shows. So <laughs> when I think that's something that I was not fully aware of until you brought it to my attention of the fact that I think in my head, even the streaming shows, I just imagine existed physically somewhere. Yeah. Like, it's just something that I just assumed based on nothing, based on the fact that they had for so many years, and even when streaming started, things were still being released on inbox sets and on DVDs. And the fact that now there are things streaming that there's literally not a physical copy of mm-hmm. blows my mind. Yeah. But I can't grasp that And it's concept. such a weird... I mean, every time I'm in a Best Buy or a Target or whatever, like, I... <laughs> it's just like a tick but i have to walk by the dvd aisle and like see what seasons they have and like it's the most chaotic smattering like like just stuff that it's really strange to me and i would love to know the like logic of how and what is still getting like put out Mm -hmm. on home video versus what doesn't make the cut and alina talks about that a lot in terms of what her trying to find out like what that threshold is to get Dickinson into the hands of fans in a physical way um, and not really having an answer. Yeah. They're not being like a clear answer because there's not a clear anything really when it comes to streaming. Like they don't, they don't have numbers. We don't have numbers. Like nobody really knows the thing. And there's also the physical production of it, which just doesn't seem to really exist in the same way anymore. Um, which is a bummer. Yep. But I mean, I think, you know, something that she touches on and fans asking for it does sometimes make the difference. Um, so I think if there's a show that you, you want to exist in that way, you should tell people, um, online that you want it to exist in that way because it might, it might get it made. You might end up with a station 11 Blu-ray. How much of this about, Elena, did you know ahead of time? Obviously, you wanted her on this panel, but did you know the whole journey she had gone on with Dickinson? What did she said that made you think, oh, she should be having this conversation? Um, I mean, I've, she, I mean, she has been a like a Twitter presence for a really long time. That's kind of how she got started a little bit. Or, I mean, she's a playwright also, but, um, but pre Dickinson had this sort of like internet persona um and then once dickinson started she's very online and very active with the fan base um and so i mean i have i've followed her throughout the show and also this like you know there were a large contingency of dickinson fans asking for dvds blu-ray whatever um and she was always very like i know i'm trying i'm trying i'm (laughs) trying i promise i'm trying 
um, and being, and so I, I knew, I knew a bunch, uh, I mean, I know she's been trying for a very long time and that she did finally get a hold of it. Um, but it obviously still does not exist, uh, in a way that can be purchased. And I mean, I, I love a lot of Apple shows like Dickinson was definitely the first one I fell in love with, but, but I, I love a lot of their shows and there, there is no way to own them currently. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's something I think about a lot. I mean, get Ted Lasso, like you can't, you can't buy Ted Lasso, but what if you could? <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I mean, feel that people <laughs> would absolutely. Um, and so I think it's, I mean, you know, for, for everybody, for fans and for platforms and for studios, like I think, I think it's a conversation that for sure should be had. And I think there is value for a lot of these shows to, to be made available in a physical form. Um, and I think it's important for the shows that maybe even aren't doing the bigger numbers that like there is still a tangible way for fans to keep. It's just like a, I don't know. It feels strange to me that there's like, there's so many shows and there's such like a fountain of content. I hate the word content, but <laughs> of content these me days. Too. And like so much of it is just, I think ephemeral is the word mm-hmm. they use. Like it just is in this cloud ether. And it's wild to me that like such a huge like piece of culture is just pixels, you know, that like mm-hmm. you can't. <laughs> And it does feel like it can disappear I mean, easily. Yeah. I mean, like once it goes into whatever like, what the some, cloud some is. guy in a back room in a building somewhere like hits the delete button and like the yeah. bear's gone, you know? It's well, like, was it, what was the animated movie? This is going to be a non-story because I can't remember. But there was a story that came out recently about an animated movie, like a big Pixar movie that almost was lost because someone accidentally deleted a bunch of it. that's nuts i know i know i'm gonna look it up and think about it later but there was something that things you accidentally hit the delete button and they disappear yeah and then i mean and it's it's more complicated that and there's also like other aspects to this i like that she talks also about the the physical like production of it and the sets and the costumes and like all this stuff that has cost like millions of dollars to produce over these you know, three, four or five years. And like, where does that stuff go? Like, you don't think about that. Like, where does that stuff live? And what are we, how does it continue to be a part of culture? Like, Mm -hmm. even after a show has ended, because there's still value in that stuff. There's still, I mean, if you're a costume designer Mm -hmm. and you want access to archival pieces from X show, like, where does that live? How do you access that? You know? Oh, Kate, our our bystander, has found the answer to the year. Toy Story 2. Toy Story 2. I knew it was a big one. It was a very long time ago, but I knew it was something that was almost deleted and left. Um, Thank you for figuring that out. But yes, I think one of the interesting things that they talk about that I also hadn't really thought about is all of the... They took did so much research and took so much time on Dickinson to create these beautiful costumes and these set pieces and these props. And then at the end of it, they were literally all just going to be trashed. Yeah. And one that's not only millions of dollars, but like hours upon hours of blood, sweat, and tears crafted it's, into this. It's not sustainable. It's not like... It's not, it's not any... It's just like... It just... It's wasteful like on so many levels and i think yeah i mean as much as i mean obviously everything can be preserved but i think we're not trying hard enough to preserve a lot of this stuff um that has cultural significance and yeah so yeah physical media should be <laughs> should be a thing and we should keep talking about it and and i really really love this conversation so me too and i love how much buzz it also created around the festival i feel that people we're really talking about it both before and afterwards. And I know our members are really excited for this release to come out for many reasons, but I think it's something that a lot of people feel passionate about, but no one's really discussing. So I'm glad that we have a place to start the discussion yeah. that we will continue on. So go watch Dickinson on Apple TV plus, and then go tweet at Apple that you, <laughs> <laughs> um, that you want to Blu-ray actually not, 
not Apple, maybe, but the studio. Yes. You know, just tweet at anyone. Tweet at everybody. Tag everyone. Um, it's fine. But yeah, tell tell people when you want physical copies of things because that might be the difference. So here's physical media, digital landscape uh, featuring Elena Smith, the creator of Dickinson, and Dan Feinberg from The Hollywood Reporter. Enjoy. Lots of people. Great to see all of you guys out here on a Sunday morning, the last morning of season 12 of ATX. Everyone's enjoying, I trust? Excellent. This is going to be a little bit loose, so hopefully if you guys have questions, comments, concerns, thoughts on the subject, which I assume you do because you're filling the room, you'll have them. But let's bring out uh, our panelist. Uh, Lena Smith is the creator of Dickinson and also previously worked on The Affair and Newsroom. Um, hi, everyone. I also just wanted to say that since it's the last day of the festival, and this was my first time here, and I've just had such a good time. And this this festival is so awesome. I, I will be back. I can't believe how fun that Righteous Gemstones event was last night. And there's just such a great energy here about, I think, supporting like the history of TV as well as the present. And yeah, it's just awesome. So thank you guys so much for having me. So, Elena, you've talked a lot about this on social media, and a lot of this panel is going to be me prompting you to basically tweet at all of us right now. <laughs> and I officially quit Twitter, so now this is happening in person. So physical tweeting if, is what we're... <laughs> if you want to, you could prefer to treat it as a TikTok if you want. If you have Great. a little dance you want to do, that's also Perfect. fine. Um, what was the point at which in the production of Dickinson you realized you'd been working on this show that you had poured your heart and soul into and that the show only existed in the wires, in the ether. In the cloud. Um, so, oh, wow. Okay, this is this is such a huge and long story because to, to contextualize, first of all, the process of me making Dickinson really was almost 10 years long. Like, it began in 2013. I... Um, wrote what became the version of the pilot that ultimately stuck and that ultimately sold the show in 2015. I sold the show straight to series to Apple TV in 2017, which was two years before Apple TV really existed. Um, they didn't launch until November of 2019. So I made all of season one, wrote, produced, delivered, you know, the the 10 episodes of season one, um, nine months before Apple even told me the date that the the season, the series, the platform would launch. Um, and in the meantime, in those nine months, I wrote and went into production on all of season two. So I was 20 episodes in the hole, in some sense. <laughs> uh, it was truly insane. I also did this while having twins, um, literally at the same time. And shout out to my husband, uh, an amazing man and cinematographer who wasn't doing any cinematography, but was raising two babies while I was on set uh, making this show. So um I knew really early on that this was a danger because I was working in basically what was a startup context. It was a, um, you know, the biggest tech company in the world launching a global streaming platform. There was also a studio um, that produced the show called Whip, which was the CAA-affiliated studio, which became at the heart of the WGA agency action against the studio, uh, agency-affiliated studios. And that went on for two years. And I knew that WIP um, was also, uh, you know, a completely brand new company. Dickinson, I believe, was their first show. Um, and that they were in the process of basically being forced to be spun off from their original owner's to someone else because of an agency, because of a guild campaign. I mean, it was so complicated and it was all also all happening in COVID, a lot of it, you know, a lot of layers. Um, so uh, I started saying very early on, like, 
where's my show? Where, where, what, what can I have a recording? Like, what if Apple never launch? What if Apple never even puts this on? What if they never even launch? You know, this would be a drop in the bucket for them. They would just, you know, now I had a somewhat a bit of a safety, perhaps in the fact that technically the show was not owned by Apple. It was owned by WIP, but that was also a company whose status was largely in doubt a lot of the time. Um, but I started talking about this really early on and everyone laughed at me. Like I, they're like, oh, come on, what do you, what do you think? They're just, you think it's just going to get thrown out? And now, you know, fast forward five years, we've seen entire seasons of shows get thrown out. We've seen entire movies get thrown out for tax write-offs, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, um, but they said, you know, don't be silly. And then, um, and then I, I kept saying like, can I please, have a Blu-ray. Can I please have, and everyone would like, look at me like I was like the weather underground or something like, cause I would be like, I need a Blu-ray. And, um, and, and everyone's just like, relax, relax. But like, that's not necessarily a good thing to ever do when you're, <laughs> when you care about something as much as I cared about Dickinson. So, um, so I will just say that I mean, it was also Dickinson was one of the first four shows to launch Apple TV plus. There was huge amounts of security and secrecy around the launching of this platform. And I mean, we had alarms on the doors of our post production houses. We had, you know, there was no way I was going to be stealing anything or getting anything out of the hands of Apple. Right. And, um, and again, like I was, this was my life's work in some way, not to say that I won't keep making stuff and I will, but this was, this was a huge thing for me. And I was, you know, putting my body really, I felt on the line, which I actually think is relevant because when we're talking about physical, what is physical, right? Like the artist is physical still on AI hasn't taken that over quite yet, but you know, and I was also drawing on, um, my theater community a lot to make the show. I, my costume designer was like one of my oldest friends and colleagues from my days at Yale Drama School. And I had cast a lot of people I knew. It was really like my life that I was putting into this work, um, along with the, my family and these two babies that I had had that were going back and forth across the country with me. Anyway, sorry. So um, it, I will then just fast forward to the very last day of Dickinson production, which was the day that we wrapped the whole show in um, 2021 in COVID, um, sort of just post the first round of vaccines. We had made a third season entirely in COVID. Um, I'll never forget, just speaking of the physicality, but I'll, I'll never forget on the first day of shooting season three, I got a FaceTime from Haley Steinfeld, who played Emily Dickinson, she was, she called me and she said, Elena, I'm in a corset and I'm double masked and I can't breathe. And like, I don't know if I can do this. And I was like, oh my God, like, you know, this, the, that's just to speak about the level of risk that artists give. Right. And, um, not to say nothing of the entire crew that was there every single day in face shields and, you know, it was hard. And also we were making a show that, was happening in the midst of the Black Lives Matter movement um, that used the Civil War as a metaphor for America today. So that was quite risky and scary as well for a lot of people who have huge hundreds of people coming together in that moment to make that story and tell that story. And people were risking a lot. And um, so it was the very last day of uh, production and two two things happened that day that were significant. I basically realized that there was no plan for what to do with the entirety of the physical um, set props costume collection that had been amassed over three seasons of the show made by like master artisans and collected by brilliant crew and, you know, production designers and set decorators. And that was, you know, millions of dollars worth of antiques that had been like selected to fit the period and with a ton of research having been done. And uh, together with my line producer, we basically intervened to stop all of that stuff from 
going in a dumpster um, and got in touch with the Emily Dickinson Museum. And they came down. We had the head of the Emily Dickinson Museum come down to uh, take a look, see if there was anything they could use. They ended up taking four trucks worth of stuff to the museum. And we contributed a huge amount to what was an already coincidentally in good timing an ongoing re um, like refurbishing and rehabilitation of Emily Dickinson's actual house, which is the museum. It's in Amherst, Massachusetts. You should all go visit. It's wonderful. You can go to her bedroom and see where she wrote her poems. And you'll see many, many objects from the show that are now preserved there. Um, as well as there's also an archive of the show that I also put together with a wonderful woman who is a um, librarian at Harvard. Harvard's Houghton Library has a huge collection of Dickinson's um, like papers and and objects as well as Amherst. And um, I had a like archive of scripts and costume sketches and things like that that we brought to Harvard that um, is now used in like classes that they teach there about about both Dickinson and about TV and film production, which is rad. But so in all of this, I still didn't have a copy of my show. And on the very last day of um, production, I called one of the executives at Apple uh, and I said, can you please give me a Blu-ray? I mean, I was literally on set. Like I was on set half masked, like pacing around and be behind some, some like plywood being like, just please promise me that I can have Blu-rays and, or DVDs. I don't even think I was asking for Blu-rays at that point. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, um, this was, you know, a very high up person at Apple. And he said, I promise you we will get these to you. It's not going to be until after season three airs, but we will get them to you. And he did. Uh, that It included more, more emailing from me, but after season three aired, I was given by Apple a set of forensically watermarked DVDs that I have in my closet. Okay, I've never actually tried to watch them because I don't actually even want to watch the show. I just want to preserve the show so that people can watch it in the future. All right. So, but Apple also gave permission for WIP, the studio, to make DVDs for sale if they wanted to. So that was huge. Okay. So 2021, wrap the show, show's done. Now begins two years of me continuing to email, pester, bother everybody nonstop to try to get DVDs made. And there was a lot of requests from the fans online at this point. Every single day, I was having people from all around the world, you know, Dickens, I don't... It's wonderful, and I, I can't exactly say why, but Dickinson has a large international following, and it's been so exciting to have fans from Brazil and Spain and Italy and, you know, uh, France and all these different places, like, reaching out every day on social media, being like, please, please, please get us a Blu-ray, hashtag Dickinson box set, hashtag, you know. And I kept asking, and I kept asking, and it wasn't happening because there apparently what I have been told is that there just simply is no market for the release of box sets. Um, and so just to speed to the final happy conclusion of this, that literally happened the day on Thursday that I got on the plane to fly here, I received at my house uh, a box with two full sets of Blu-rays that were made for me by the studio. So, Okay, so there there will now be four sets of Blu-rays in existence. One is mine, one will live at the museum, one will live at Harvard Library, and one will live at Amherst Library. So I've strategically placed uh, four <laughs> sets of my show in locations around New England. My my husband, who knows some stuff about um, he, he, film archiving, he worked for a film distribution company for a long time. I, I said literally over dinner, I was like, do you think, how how good is Blu-rays? Is this going to last? And he's like, it's pretty good. I'm like, yeah. okay. <laughs> you know, and I have also, um, you know, I, I am also have been assured at this point that there are full and complete sets of the masters. And, and in fact, all the data that was ever shot for the show, so meaning dailies, everything, both Apple and Whip have that 
somewhere. I keep asking for the actual address um, and not quite getting it, but um, but I will eventually. And and actually, part of the reason I have, I got a bullet point list from my post producer. I said, can you please tell me every deliverable that you handed over so I know what there was supposed to be, right? Look, the point of all this is to say that like, I had no idea when I set out to make a show that what I'm calling like the autopsy phase of my show uh, would would continue for so long afterwards. I feel like I've had to be the custodian of this entire process. And um, I've also recently joined a WhatsApp thread with a lot of people who are in both the WGA and the DGA um, because, you know, talking about the strike and the relationship between the two guilds. And I've learned that many, many people are in my position, people of great stature in the field, um, people who have won huge awards, can't get copies of their TV and film. So it's a cultural emergency. I do think there's a growing awareness. And I think that at this point, like, you know, whereas back when I first was asking about it, everybody was like, what? I do think now people are like, oh yeah, we get it. Like stuff gets thrown out all the time and you have to like protect your work. Um, but you know, people in this industry have all different kinds of levels of leverage and who can ask for what. And, you know, when I was selling Dickinson, I couldn't ask for anything because I was a first time young female showrunner who, um, you know, was basically just so excited at the idea that I was going to get to make my dream. Um, and yeah, so this is, this is it. I, I, I have just spoken for a very long time. That's my full story. <laughs> I will now, uh, be happy to talk just sort of generally about like the implications of all of this in terms of what does it mean for us as a culture to not have these artifacts? Well, I'm, I'm curious though, what you are going to want to have in your next deal. Is it as simple as I walk away with a DVD set or is there something more complicated that you think you're going to have to make sure that you have in the next contract? I would say like at minimum, I would request Blu-rays. I might also ask a couple people who know a little bit better than me, like what's the next level up from that? Like what's the, the print? What's the, you know, hard drive? Like what's the phrase that says, this is the best version of the archive of this that I can have. And I would, you know, say in the contract, like just as it is for these libraries and museums that are getting these Blu-rays, it's all limited use. It's for academic, you know, con consumption. It's not, no one's profiting off of this. Um, but you know, I would, I would certainly be like, there has to be some kind of physical copy that I get to keep. But even still in, in the event of the zombie apocalypse, that's going to knock out all of our internet connections, either anyone who wants to watch Dickinson is going to have to come to your house <laughs> or there might be other inconveniences is at this point, is the conversation about getting Dickinson on DVD or countless, countless, countless other shows that are in the same position, is it a dead end conversation? Is there, do you, when you have those conversations, do you sense anyone is giving it consideration or giving alternative strategies to sort of wide rollout of DVDs consideration? Yeah, it's such a good question. I mean, what I kept asking and what I, what I wish people would look at is why isn't there a way to scale this appropriately for different projects? Why can't there be essentially a form of a Kickstarter in a way? I mean, like there's so many Dickinson fans that would love to have a box set and I bet you they'd pay more than $20 for it and, and because they love it so much. So it's like, could there be ways of, of scaling things appropriately so that, you know, you could service the people who really want to own the object, right? I mean, another slightly slight variation on that is like can we have some kind of a criterion collection for television um and uh i guess in but 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 then i guess we we turn to the more speculative like what will happen so we were obviously at some kind of inflection point in these streaming wars and um Part of the reason why nobody ever asked for this before was because it never occurred to anybody because it was all just moving so fast and things had been the way they were for so long and now they were changing. But now they're changing again. You know, we've we've we're having a situation. We're having. I mean, I'm really interested in the story of of like theatrical in terms of all this because for me, like one of the most painful parts of COVID was missing going to the movie theaters and like 
I really was afraid in that beginning part that it was just going to be the death of all movie theaters and we were never going to go to the movies again. Um, I know we're not like fully out of the woods about that, but it does seem like people are so hungry to go back to movies and people are hungry to get out of their houses. And so, so, you know, is there, um, is there more of a, almost like nostalgic return. You know, pe people are buying a lot of records also, like nobody expected that. And I also heard that in COVID um, or in the past three years, there's been a huge resurgence in openings of independent bookstores, mm -hmm. uh, which is super cool. So right now, these conversations are kind of just beginning, but I'm very interested in conversations around independent artist-driven studios that care about the archive um, I'm interested in efforts to uh, possibly raise awareness around like antitrust issues and the monopolization of all media by gigantic tech companies uh, that, you know, if they were broken apart, everyone would be better off. Everyone. Like there would be more buyers, more sellers, a more thriving marketplace, more options and opportunities. And again, those those ways where it doesn't have to be one size fits all, you know, something like Dickinson, um, not that I ever got any numbers telling me anything about how many people ever watched the show. So I don't want to accidentally diminish the size of the audience because I actually think it might've been quite large. I have no idea. Um, but certainly it was a young, queer, radical show that was aimed at a, a certain audience that had gone unaddressed before and that audience um, might want the opportunity to support like that in a way that is, that has to, there has to be a different lane. It can't just be like it gets lumped all into the same lane with Fast and the Furious. I mean, with all due respect, and I just saw Fast X and I loved it, but like, I don't know. There's just got to, we can't have a one size fits all um, situation. And right. And wasn't that supposed to be the promise of streaming that there would be, something for everyone and all these niches and yeah. Well, you mentioned the, uh, the numbers and lack of numbers. And I'm, I'm curious if there's a conspiracy corner of your lizard brain that thinks that part of the reason why people don't want to put this out is a residuals and not wanting to get into that, but also if you were to say, okay, we're doing a run of only 5,000 copies of Dickinson, would it require someone to go, we need to do that only because this is what the actual viewership was? Like, do you feel like it might be a mm -hmm. gateway that they're afraid of that once you start doing that, you open the door to require getting people more information and more money? No, I just think that right now the industry is in such a crazy transition that there isn't literally like the physical apparatus set up to to print these sort of bespoke runs of of Blu-rays. I mean, um, you know, it's like it would be one thing if we could guarantee 300 million copies sold. But if it's not at that scale what's the alternative, you know? And it's, it's such a weird thing with, look, if I had written a novel, I could, I could probably figure this out. I could do even something akin to like self-publishing or some small independent press, but um, a television show is so enormous and um, it, it, you know, this is the, this is the thing. It's like, can, even though Dickinson was made with the same exact independent spirit as, as that self-published novel would have been made. Um, you know, it, yeah. I, I would just be curious about, cause, cause obviously the, the business model that it sounds like you're looking for is something akin to what the Warner archive attempted to do, where it was, we're not putting these out in mass runs, but if you come and order it and pay another $5 more, you can do it. But, I love that idea. But even they were obviously only able to do that because of the scale of the operation. And I don't hear people talking about it anymore. And I wonder if that means that it was a, a effectively, you know, a lost leader and not even that. So I, I kind of wonder what they would tell you if, you know, is this a business model that works? And is the answer no? <laughs> that seems what I've gotten so far is that I've gotten there. This we've, we, you know, I genuinely believe that the studio um, tried and tried and tried to find a solution to this and like just didn't because there isn't anything currently on the market that, that is there. Now, I mean, maybe somebody who's listening to this podcast will will know something different or something. You know, I, I don't know. Um, but it's, you know, it's even something like the costumes of Dickinson. You know, the, the Dickinson costumes were made by some of the most brilliant tailors, 
you know, who are working today. And, and there was just this shop of devoted craftspeople and artisans, like building these gorgeous costumes that were period accurate and were um, designed for these characters were singular looks like Emily's red dress that she wears when she meets death that became like iconically associated with the show. And the idea that there wasn't a plan for housing those, um, really distressed me because it feels like, well, these are people working at the highest levels of, of, you know, it, it, it's, it, it took us all so long to get here. Like what kind of just cur curatorial relationship is there to this type of work? Well, and is there, do you think from your perspective, is there a relationship that you know, it's really, there has, it's decentralized and so problematic, but is there a relationship that showrunners and people in your position are supposed to have with places like the Paley Center or various museum of moving arts, whatever, where they're actually stepping in and saying, if we lose this, this is a problem from our perspective. We're supposed to be the hub and repository of all, you know, cultural filmed knowledge. Maybe we're dropping the ball. Is is that something that's, that needs to happen? That's very interesting. And, and that's a kind of example of something that just would not have occurred to me because I had never done it before. So, yeah. Well, and also, even then, if you did it, you would be one person doing it. You, <laughs> which there were six hundred scripted shows that premiered last year. How would you do that? Yeah. I want to make sure people get the chance to ask questions, but I do want to ask a sort of a philosophical question because you started your career primarily as a playwright, and I'm curious what you have in terms of physical media from those shows, from an individual production or whatever of a play, and how you deal with the idea that one medium is at least ostensibly accepted as being more ephemeral. A play goes up, it's gone, and that's it, as opposed to a TV show where we have this strange belief that it's going to be forever and maybe it's not. This is such an important question and there's a really clear answer, which is that playwrights retain copyright over their work. And that's why playwrights don't have a union, is because we don't sell our work, we lease it. And so while individual productions are ephemeral and come and go, I own those plays and I can always put them up again, but I don't actually own Dickinson. I don't own those scripts. I don't own those episodes. Companies do. And um, they're huge and they're ephemeral, the companies. Like, it's confusing. It's like, where is this company? I can't sit down across the table from a company and have a conversation um, you know, it's, 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 it, so, so, you know, but I will also say on the flip side of that, like, I didn't leave theater and come to TV and film to just like have another ephemeral experience. Like I really thought I was getting something more, uh, <laughs> kind of commodified and, um, and like something that you could build a life on. Um, so I don't want TV and film to become just this vaporous. And of course I understand that there's always been shows that have disappeared right like but there also used to be vcrs and now there's not i mean there's torrents i don't really know how to do that i don't know <laughs> i'm an i'm an older millennial i'm not like i'm not a hacker you know like i don't know so <laughs> it's not like you don't know how to use limewire or napster to get a tv show if you need to <laughs> i would ask my husband to do it but <laughs> Does anyone have it? Let's go work your way down. So. Um, does, yeah. music, does music licensing um, complicate the math of physical media at all? She asked about music licensing. If, if I repeat your questions, it's so that it will be picked up on the podcast. Um, but yes, she asked about music licensing and if that's a complication. Um, okay, so I don't know all the nitty gritty of it, but I have to assume that when they make those deals, it's in those deals when they license the song for perpetuity in this use case. Yeah, I feel, and I feel like with so many, with so many of the things, like almost always, if you're like, why can I not find Northern Exposure? Why can I not find, until a couple of years ago, Dawson's Creek with the actual theme song? The answer was almost always music rights. But at this point, it sounds like there are so many different <laughs> things. So next, Alan. What's the responsibility of the viewer, consumer, especially when we think about like the convenience of things being being able to just buy in the stream, not having to bring stuff with us, books easily on Kindle, like. We like those things, but also we want to support and ensure the continuity at the same time. How do we, how do we find that balance? What can the viewers do? Yeah, I mean, it's such a good question, and I'm sure it's one we've all been asking ourselves for at least a decade with the music industry, right? It's like if I support an artist and I know they're getting like half a cent 
off 28 streams or whatever, um, you know, should I buy their album? Um, and now that exact same sort of unbundling that tech has brought to media has come for TV and film. So I love the question. I would, I, I don't, I don't know, but I would say maybe just like, like one, one thing that is so cool about, about, you know, TV and film in the age of the internet is the way that like social media facilitates fan communities coming together. And I think that like, if you are part of a fandom, you can agitate for physical media and the artist will definitely appreciate it. Right there. Why is the focus so much on just having things for individuals rather than the concern environmentally of storing things digitally long term, which cost way more in resources than having physical media stored? It's a good question. It's a good question. I'm not completely sure. It's a good question. Not completely it's sure. About the, the environmental impact yeah. of di of long term digital storage, which which, by the way, like that, that's also why ultimately all this stuff is not going to stay online. Because it's not only it's it's not only the, I mean it's an environmental cost, but it's just the economic cost. The co the corporations are not going to finance the enormous amounts of servers and compute power that it's going to take to long term store six hundred in one year scripted shows. You know, so yes, absolutely, and um and perhaps we will all end up back you know, in the theater, uh, because, well, you know, which would be fine, I guess. But, um, but yeah, I, I agree. Like the, 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 one of the biggest concerns about, about the digital in general is the way that we all think of it as something weightless and something that has no, um, connection to the earth. But of course it's made by the earth and it's made by humans. And, and so, yeah, this is a great question. Well, I just wanted to ask if there, because I'm a big Star Trek person, and I feel like we're one of the few shows that still get DVD, like we can buy DVD copies of all the new streamers that are happening, and I feel like horror is also in that space, so is there something to be learned from the genre folks that is not being, I guess, dispersed elsewhere? Because um, I do feel very lucky that I can literally buy a DVD of the latest season of Strange New Worlds, like. The, the question is about why uh, in certain genre spaces there actually still are these pipelines of do you want to do you want to try to answer that oh god well it's it's tough because i mean basically the the simple answer is that if there's an established audience then people will put things out and if there there's been sufficient enough precedent and if someone in a corner in an accounting office can say well we put that one out last week and it was a comedy therefore and you know that's the way hollywood works if one thing no one bought, they're going to go, well, we had another period comedy that no one bought, so we're not going to do it. And that's unfortunately, so the, like the lesson that Hollywood learns about everything is, is if something made money last week, we can do it again this week. And if it didn't, yeah. And so the thing I want to know is, you know, you the, the writers have been out and about and having their WhatsApp conversations and their picket line conversations, et cetera. Is this the thing that's been coming up in your conversations? Yes. More and more, for sure. Um, and I think that that's why, like, I do believe that these types of protections will start being implemented. Um, I mean, you know, and, and ultimately I was triumphant after my two years, I was able to, to rest Blu-rays from the jaws of, of the digital. Um, so, so like, I hope that this will help other people, um, have standing to ask for that. Um, it doesn't address, you know, the problem generally of like the audience and the, the, the desire for there to be ways of holding on to your favorite art that isn't just hoping it stays online. And, and like going back to your question also, even things that did work don't always continue to work. And so again, once something doesn't work once, even if it worked 50 times the time before that, people will check out. Like I was talking with Matt Selman of The Simpsons yesterday and, and for, you know, for 20 years out of their 957 seasons, DVD sets of The Simpsons were, were this huge thing and, and they were, you know, big box sets and all of that. And if you've noticed the last 10 to 12 seasons, they haven't come out. And, uh, and he was saying also that they've recorded commentaries for multiple, for many of those seasons and all of that. And that someone simply decided last week, there was a marketplace for this yesterday. There wasn't, okay, fine, we'll move on. And, and that's, so you, you should be scared, scared if someone doesn't buy the next Star Trek DVD release, it could vanish. So 
it's the horrible thing where they're basically leveraging the consumer and they're saying, well, you didn't buy it, so therefore you're not getting it. And that's not a good way to <laughs> do anything. Let's get one more question before we... Yeah, you briefly touched on it just now, which is the extras and the content that a lot of either fans or emerging, you know, people that want to be in the industry, um, you're not getting the chance to highlight those craftsmen through featurettes, commenters, etc. So mm -hmm. you're going to get your thoughts. Reels well, that's yes. I mean, it, that I should. I, I was just thinking how a, a lot of the tweets and comments that I would get every day from the fans would just say, "Release the bloopers, release the bloopers," and I'm like, I don't have the bloopers. Like the bloopers haven't been cut by an editor. No one is paying for the labor that it would take to put these bloopers together. But yes, I would love to. Also, we didn't really have that many bloopers, to be honest. Everybody was, everybody was just like. So on point the whole time, but, um, but, <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, it also, it's, it gets a lot harder to have bloopers when you're shooting in COVID. Oof, that was not like a fun and everyone was just like, do the job, get out of the set. Um, but, uh, exactly like, like where, you know, it's, it's, this might be another thing where I will say like the more that artists can own their own work you know, the more that there can be disruptions of these monopolistic sy systems via artist-driven collectives or studios that might prioritize this relationship, right? Because it's it's all about relationships. Like, that's what we're doing here. That's what we're doing here more than anything, I think, is, is, is having conversations and forming relationships. If we're not doing that, I don't really, like, this work isn't, isn't worth it really. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I guess it's just in that, in that way, it's like an ongoing conversation. Let's keep asking for what we want and trying to talk to each other and using the tools that we do have, um, in, in connecting with each other and saying like, what is the, the media world that we want to live in, I guess. And this feels like a conversation that we are going to probably be having at season 13 of ATX TV Fest and season 14. So, so thank you guys so much for coming out today and touching on a corner of the conversation. Thank you, Elena. Thank you so much. You have been listening to the TV Campfire podcast, hosted by ATX TV co-founders Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarland and produced by Jennifer Morgan. This conversation was recorded live at ATX TV Festival Season 12 in Austin, Texas, between June 1st and 4th, 2023. For more information on the festival and becoming an ATX TV member, follow us at ATX Festival or visit atxfestival.com.